seriously, I thought when you were walking up here, you were just coming to take over. <laughs> you're just like slowly just. <coughs> it's okay. All right, well, good morning, everyone. Again, same person who was up here a little bit ago, Robert. Um, so good to see you all uh, this morning. Uh, one thing that I did forget when I was uh, pinch-ending on community time is that near or around you, there are communication cards. Um, and so it's just a great opportunity. Those that are in leadership here love the opportunity to be able to pray for you. So there's opportunity on the back um, to jot down prayer requests. Um, or if you're new here, um, great opportunity to get connected. Or if you've always wondered what opportunities there are to get connected, um, there's some things that you can check off on there. And so at any time uh, this morning, you can put those in the black box back there. So um, they're just, they'll be around, um, or you can get some in the back. Uh, so we're continuing on in our um, series through the book of Hebrews uh, today. And so we're going to be starting off in Hebrews 9. I'm going to read this passage and then pray, and then we'll jump in. So Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 14, um, if you want to pull that up, or it'll be up on the screen. And so it reads this way, Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were a lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section, called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offered for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into holy places is not yet open, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest for the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling and defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of the heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the internal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a gift it is to be able to gather together, to be able to dive into your word, to be able to hear your good news proclaimed, uh, to proclaim it, um, to proclaim it to one another in our presence, in our learning. Uh, be with us this morning. Uh, may it bring glory and honor to you as we continue to press into your word uh, as written through Hebrews. In your name, amen. Uh, so like I said, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, um, and we'll continue to be going through the book of Hebrews for a while. Uh, it's, as you have uh, seen, a lot of richness in there. And so just a brief review, uh, <laughs> really, and it's kind of the consistent review that we talk about, about where we've been, is that the author of Hebrews has one goal, and that's continuously to get us to Jesus. Time and time again, each section, anything that the author is talking about is eventually going to be pointing us back to Jesus, where Jesus belongs, how Jesus fits into this, 
that Jesus is better than what has been done, what we understand, and there's even more to understand than we think we understand already. And so time and time again, Jesus is better, which is the subtitle for our series, and where the author of Hebrews is already always taking us. And so, like a lot of texts lately and throughout the book of Hebrews, um, our text today begins talking about the first covenant or the old covenant, the regulations of worship. And like the author of Hebrews always does, um, shows that the author has great depths about his understanding of the people of God and the practices and the rituals and what it meant and what was practiced and how it was done. And, like always, the author of Hebrews makes a lot of assumptions that you, the reader, know all of these things as well. Um, and are in the same place that um, the author is at. And so if you are going through the book of Hebrews, and if you have been, um, as I've been going through it, as I prepared for this, other ones, and just journeying along in general, uh, the book of Exodus and Leviticus can kind of become your best friends <laughs> throughout this. If you grab a study Bible or anything that has footnotes, it's amazing how every few verses, and even multiple times within a verse, it brings you back to Exodus or Leviticus. And even just in this selection alone, I think I counted like 37 footnotes back to those those passages and so it's a great opportunity to kind of follow that trail and I just want to encourage y'all as we go through a lot of content in this series and there's some things that we want to get to so there's some things that have been done in other sermons um, that won't be done here or won't be done in future sermons is that to talk to one another to dive into the text that we're doing to not just come and hear from whoever is speaking but to actually carry these conversations on um, and if there's something that you have questions about ask someone here or ask someone in your community group or um, or if you've missed something, connect with one another, because there's a lot of content um, that's been uh, dove into, and as we see in these 14 verses, um, there's a lot that's talked about. And so in light of all that, in light of what's been talked about with the tent and the priesthood um, and the old covenant, I just want to make some um, brief observations about these first 10 verses, about what they present to us, um, what we're kind of dealing with to be able to set up uh, 11 through 14. And so what we see here is what it seems like as we read this, these verse ten, first, first 10 verses, is that a very limited and temporary reality is presented. Um, we hear about the regulations of worship, of the temple. We've talked about this before in previous sermons, but everything that's here is limited and temporary. The tent is prepared. Um, it is man-made. It is a creation. Instructions were given. Um, it will have wear and tear. It will have to be protected. It will have to be put up. Um, for those of you who are on setup or teardown, you think it's a hard to pack stuff into a trailer <laughs> in Minnesota winters and drive it a few blocks, thinking about the vagabond lifestyle of the people of God and the movement and the weather and the storms and all of those different pieces within it, um, that there is a temporary and limited nature to the tent that's been prepared. Um, there's two sections to the tent. Uh, there's a first section. Um, the text tells us that the priest goes in regularly to perform rituals. Um, so this section's for a specific um, priesthood, it's for a specific people. Um, there's a limited to who can go into that. Um, second section is even more limited as it's signified as the most holy place where only the high priest goes, only those that signified with that, and not regularly. In the first section, we see that the priests go in regularly. In the second section, we see that this is only once a year and not without taking blood. So there's preparation that has to be done. Um, there's things that need to happen in a specific order for this to be entered and at a specific time. And the text tells us that this cannot perfect the conscience. So a limited and temporary reality, what has been done regularly needs to continue to be done regularly. What has been killed needs to be killed again. 
What has been done yearly needs to be done again the next year. And what has been made right for the people needs to be made right again. It's a process. It's a movement. It is repetitive. It is similar things. What was okay is now not okay. What was okay now needs to be done again. And though I'm a little cautious to do this because I can feel my Jewish studies professor rolling his eyes at me as I'm about to make this analogy, but I can't get out of my head, so I'm going to go with it anyway um, and see what happens. As I'm reading this text, and as I've been reading these texts over the first, you know, last couple weeks and months, I keep seeing Brennan playing Zelda in my head, and so Brennan's my uh, eight-year-old who is kind of taking a fancy for video games, <laughs> uh, and so he went through a stretch of time where he was playing Link's Awakening for the Switch, which is an old version of a Zelda game that they have um, re-put together and remastered for the Switch, and yeah, I think there is a temple on there um, that leads you to a dungeon within it. And why this kept coming to mind, especially when we're thinking about what was being presented here um, as a temple and this limited and temporary reality and all these things that need to be done at specific times and all these things that need to be in specific places, is it's just been fascinating watching him play the game. And everything, if you're going to go through this, if you're going to get access to things, if you're going to do things just right, need to be in the right place. Things need to be done in the right order. You need to have someone else who has something that they can give you. You need to have someone else who can go through something that you can't go through. You need to drink the potions in the right order. You need to do all of these different pieces or you can't get to the next section. And some people can only go to another section and you can and you have to wait for them to complete their task. And then you find out that you've done all that, you've completed everything and there's another room that needs to be done all again. And if you miss something or you've lost something or if you've lost the special helps that you've gotten, you need to start over and do it again. And there's things that you can do in the wrong order and that mess you up and then make a little eight-year-old really frustrated and then it makes your parents really frustrated when they know what you need to do and you really want to have the controller in play but you want to learn and things like that. But it's a process and we're learning how to play video games with, with kids. Um, and sometimes we're learning how to play video games with each other as parents as well within that. And so I just couldn't get away from that image of this limited and temporary, that it's only good for a certain a time and it needs to be done again. And there is a right order and there's a right people and only certain people can do this. And then you are even doing this on behalf of the town folk because they can't go do this themselves. And so just to have that in your head of this limited and temporary reality. But like the text always does, the text continues. And how does the text continue as we get through those first 10 verses? Starting with verse 11, it says, But then Christ appeared. But when Christ appeared. So I have these first 10 verses that have been talked about, that have been gone through, that have been developed, thinking about what has been done, what's needed to be done, what is going to continue to need to be done to make things right. And even that's limited, and even that's temporary. But then the text takes us, but when Christ appeared. And before we break this down, before we follow through what happens in 12 through 13 and the rest of verse 11, I just want you to hear that and just sit with that. But when Christ appeared, who is the actor there? Who is appearing? Are we appearing? Are you appearing? Is a, another priest appearing? Is the people of God appearing? It's when Christ appeared. But when Christ appeared, when Christ appeared. And I think I could keep saying it again, it doesn't really still sit as much as it calls for us to have it sit with. But when Christ appeared, something happened. Something changed. Something was going to be different. Not when anyone else did anything. 
even now, not when you and I do anything, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but here in this text, there's a stop. Here's this first 10 verses of explaining everything that needs to be done, and it is this but. And if we know the author of Hebrews, if we've been here, therefores and buts, the author of Hebrews loves those two. But are therefore, but here, but when Christ appeared, but when Christ appeared. So how did Christ appear? The text tells us in 11 through 14 that Christ appeared as a high priest. Um, as we saw in verses 1 through 10, only a high priest can go into the second section and offer the sacrifice. And as we've seen earlier in our journey through Hebrews that Jesus is a specific high priest. He's a priest in the line of the order of Melchizedek, which is a priesthood that has no end. As we've talked about in other sermons, these priests that were performing these functions died. It's limited. Only certain people can be in this role, and those people are going to die. But here, we not only have a high priest, but we have a high priest who has no end. And so when Christ appeared, Christ appeared as a high priest. Christ appeared as a greater and more perfect tent. We see that the tent that was being offered, the tent where holiness could be accessed, where sacrifice could be had, where forgiveness could be, is temporary. It was made with human hands, by humans. And some of us, depending on your skill level, the things that we make are more temporary than others. Anything I make is very temporary, <laughs> very quick. Probably not going to hold together that well. Um, th they had a lot better instructors and were much better at skills and trades than I am. Uh, but even still, the best craftsmen, the best people at building things, things are going to be temporary. Weather, all these different pieces. But here we have Christ. A greater and more t perfect tent. The text tells us that this is a tent not of human creation, not made of hands. Where we have seen in verses 1 through 10 that this needed to be done regularly in the first section, once a year in the second section, the text tells us that Christ has entered once and for all. Priests had to go in regularly to the first section, high priest second section once a year, but here Christ has entered once and for all. There's a finality. There's not something limited and temporary about this. There is a once and for all Christ has entered. But when Christ appeared, he has entered once and for all. And by the means of his own blood, thus securing an internal redemption, this isn't something that needs to continuously be repetitively done. Don't need to go find another goat. Don't need to go find another heifer, which I'm sure is to the great delight of all the heifers and goats and other things that are like, oh, it must be that time of the year again. And so there is um, an internal redemption here that this is the blood of Christ. This isn't the blood of some animals. And it's not, and I think this is key here, because in this first section, in these first ten verses, before we get here, it talks about that things are being made right, that there is, this is being done on behalf of the unintentional sins, and it needs to be done again. It can't perfect the conscience. It can make you right here in this, but it's got to be done again, and it's going to have to be done again. It's going to have to be done again, but there's this internal redemption, and so it's not just a reconciliation, and reconciliation here meaning thinking that of something being made right. It's not just a reconciliation. There is a redemption that is happening. There is a saving that is happening. There is a movement. This isn't just, you're right right now. You're not going to be right tomorrow. <laughs> you're right right now. You're not going to be right tomorrow. There is a reconciliation and a redemption. There is being make a right. There is a being saved from this. And the second section of the text ends by telling us that this purifies this work of Jesus, through Jesus, the saving act, purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. As we see at the end of their first ten verses, it flat out says that this cannot perfect the conscience. 
This work that's being done is temporary and limited. There is not a purifying to an internal redemption level happening here, a movement from dead works to serve the living God. And I want us to sit and, and stay with that um, for a little bit, especially on that purifying conscience and dead works to serve the living God. Again, like when our verse 11 started, but when Christ appeared, I really want us again to focus on who is making this happen. Who is moving? Who is acting this? Who is making possible the purifying of the conscience for dead works to serve the living God? It's not ourselves purifying our own conscience. I mean, last couple weeks ago, I tried to get Casey multiple times to go see the movie Cats with me, right? There, I, I don't have good decisions or discernment. So <laughs> not me purifying my own conscience there, right? Uh, and so who is the actor here? And time and time again, the author of Hebrews is telling us it is Jesus. It is Jesus that is moving. It's Jesus that is acting. And we see this in the purifying of our conscience. It is and then in dead works to serve a living God. And I think this, this last part here, this dead works to serve a loving, living God that comes out of the purifying our conscience through the work of Jesus is so key because it communicates movement. And we don't always really like movement because movement means change. If you move, you've changed. My vantage point right now is going to be different if I move over here. And Jesus, through his work, through the purifying of our conscience, brings that movement, not because of our own actions, not because of our own works. And I think it's just so great that as it gets translated here and as the author of Hebrews communicates, that it's not just dead works to good works. It's dead works to serve a living God. Because we can get so fixated on works, on doing things, that we can often lose track of why we're doing things. And I think it's so great that we talk about dead works because works actually might still be a good thing that we're doing. But how are they being done out of and why are they doing out of and what are we trying to strive? What are we trying to receive? What are we trying to earn? So works, even if they're good things, can still be dead works. And dead works can be problematic and bad things as well. But to be able to see that there's this movement that this purifying of the conscience is having for us, for this dead works to serve the living God, I think is key because dead works don't move us. It's like those old-timey films where there isn't enough money or there isn't enough technology to actually go anywhere, so you sit on a train with the scenery moving behind you, and you just sit there and you sit there, and dead works can give you this false perception that you have somehow moved. But you haven't, because it's so easy to get fixated on it being about us and us doing things, and that's just going to continue this never-ending cycle that's never going to be able to be satisfied. Because we're always going to want to do something else. We're always going to want to try harder. We're always going to try to be able to figure out what it is. We're always going to try to figure out how to get into that first section or second section. And we're going to think that there are sections. And just recognize that. But when Christ appeared, through the work of Christ, through the purifying of our conscience, we were able to make this movement. And movement is such a powerful thing because movement is a process. You don't just move right away. I mean, sadly, Star Trek's not real and you can't beam someone up, because that'd be super cool, and it'd be a lot of fun, or terrifying, one of the two. But like movement is a process. You actually have to move somewhere. It is a process, therefore it is movement. And I'm repeating this continuously because we move in our lives, we change in our lives, we grow in our lives. It doesn't stay the same, it is not stagnant. And especially for us who have been, for those of you, 
I have to remind myself of this all the time, who've been around the church a lot. Like, this isn't some great brand new, insane news to you. This is just something that, like, yeah, it's Sunday. Like, we are continuously moving. We're continuously making a process. And for those of you, because we've been around the church so long, who can get super judgy of people who are not moving fast enough, I think we all need to remind ourselves that Jesus invites us into this movement of dead works and to serve the living God. And one last challenge with dead works, and I think, again, why this movement is so important for us, is I think one of the most heinous ways that dead works can take its toll on us is it not, not the movement piece, that it keeps us from moving, though that's really hard, is our dead works can kind of become this ridiculous measuring stick to judge others with. But like, look at all this stuff that I'm doing. Look at all these things that I do. Look at this church that I go to. Look at all these good things that I do, might, which might all be great, but if you're really only doing those things to like wave the Christian flag and say, look at me, <laughs> probably not that great, probably not that helpful and creating a self-righteous heart. And um, for those of you who don't know, I work at a seminary and work with a lot of students, oversee their internship programs. Um, and then I also help students get licensed and credentialed in a handful, way too many networks and way too many denominations. I really want like an alphabet magnet on my whiteboard so I can be like, what letters am I dealing with today? LCMC, PCUSA, ELCA, this, that, I don't know. Um, it gets really messy and crazy. And it's also why deep down, like I actually don't know if I could do my job if I'm not somewhat ecumenical at heart because I have the opportunity to see the fact that like God's moving and working in these. And then I also got to see the fact that we're selfish and arrogant in all of these too. <laughs> And um, depending how much you are in the theological, biblical world, we are like in an obsessive season of theological gatekeeping right now. And what I mean by that is how are we better than you? And what can you do to belong here? And how can you belong here? Can you not belong here? What we're really doing is we're creating new sections of a new tent that we're the high priest of, or certain leaders are high priest of. And it's exhausting. Um, and I won't bore you with all the details because God's grace abounds in so many of these networks and God's moving and working all that. But if that's your daily life, it gets really frustrating and disheartening. <laughs> and it also just pains you and hurts you because you see a lot of colleagues and friends. And then especially if people don't understand what's actually going on, we really diminish certain networks and denominations. Like, I can't believe they're doing this. I can't believe doing that. While I'm sitting in an office with pastors who are just in tears by the breaking up of their traditions and denominations. And so I guess that's just a long, quick way Real quick, instead of like judging all these other networks and denominations, pray for them. It's hard. It's ugly. It's messy. They need the gospel. We need the gospel. And so dead works can often be this measuring stick in which we want to judge other people with. Like they're not doing that, this, which then to a certain extent calls into question why we're even doing what we're doing in the first place. And so Jesus invites us into this place of our conscience being purified, this movement from dead works to serving a living God. And serving the living God, that movement from dead works to serving the living God, even that language of dead to service, there's life there. Because you're not going to serve if you're dead. You're going to live. And you're going to live, and there's something about living that is hopeful, right? At least I hope it is. There's something about living that is hopeful, that has this movement there from dead works to serving the living God. And when you're hopeful and when you're living, it's a lot more exhausting and it's a lot more disheartening just to tear down other people. Because you're seeing this fact that we're serving the living God. This isn't just about status. This isn't just about building a specific community of people that looks a certain way or acts a certain way. But it's about letting people 
receive the good news of Jesus and letting that move them and letting yourself be used by God in a way that moves them. Because it's just mind-blowing to me that sometimes we expect people to get right before they get Jesus. Like, we got this, like, checklist of, like, oh, but they're still doing this, or they're still doing this, or they're still doing this. And I have to be reminded, I'm like, wait a minute, but what am I still doing? (laughs) What am I still struggling with? What was I still struggling with in the midst of and after and all through the fact that I still get to come here and show up? I had a buddy who was an intern pastor in Vegas. If you can just imagine his stories and his adventure (laughs) and that. And he would meet so many people who actually believed that if they walked in his church, they were going to get struck with lightning. And not just like, ha, 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 but like really terrified that that would happen. Story after story. And we're like, oh, I don't know if I want those people coming to my church or that person coming to my church. But yet, we get to come in. We get to walk in. We're like, but yeah, but they believe that or they think that. Well, let's talk about Jesus and let that move them. Let that change them. And more importantly, maybe let Jesus do that work that we're wanting so hard to be done to other people on us. I was recently reminded and just everything that's going on in the world and news lately, there's um, an old, uh, old monk that I read a lot of his writings. Um, he's been passed away for, now, and for a while now. His name's Thomas Merton. And he, he talked about the fact that um, he was writing about uh, the rise of communism and potential wars and all those pieces. And he said, it's funny because I find myself always praying that they figure it out and that they get right. Like, I pray for these people to see where they're wrong. And he's like, well, I should pray. I should pray for them. I should pray that they know Jesus. I should pray that his peace that passes all understanding comes under them. But why am I making such the assumption that that peace is with me? Why am I making that assumption that somehow that I'm not in need of that same prayer? Or what's mind-blowing sometimes is sometimes like the denomination or network you hate is praying for you to find Jesus too (laughs) while you're praying for them to find Jesus. And it's, it's, and it's not that these conversations aren't important. It's not these challenges. It's just where are we starting from? What is it that we are rooted in? What is that peace, that hope that we're rooted in? Uh, one of my favorite theologians when I was an undergrad, more because I wanted to impress one of my professors at Bethel than I actually cared about him, um, was Carl uh, Barth. And before, depending on your theological, biblical knowledge, before you're like, but Barth said that, and Barth wrote this. Um, if you were on the, like, the bandwagon of the Hamilton musical, um, no one wrote like it was going out of style more than Carl Barth. Carl Barth's got this great quote that I haven't even read half of what I've written. And it's just so much writing, so much writing, so much writing. And there's great beauty in that because the reality is, is we're human and we're broken and we're going to get things right sometimes and we're going to get things wrong sometimes. And so there's much that is beautiful and formative in his writing and there's much that I'm like, yeah, I don't know that. But that's true for all of our favorite theological heroes as well. And so regardless of how you view him, regardless of what you think of him, and if you haven't ever heard of him, that was all just irrelevant for you. So good for you as well. It's great. But I love this, and I, I've been keeping this with me throughout this, and it kind of came to mind as I was thinking about these first sections, second sections, the way that Jesus has come and entered once and for all and torn that down. And, and he writes this. He says, This much is certain, that we have no theological right to set any sort of limits on the loving kindness of God 
which has appeared in Jesus Christ. Our theological duty is to see and understand it as it still being greater than we had seen it before. To see it as still being greater than we have seen it before. And now I want to pause here and say, if our first response is, is but this or but that, to just hold off and stop and say, why wouldn't we want everyone to know the goodness of Jesus and to know that his love is for you and with you? And then if the response is, but they have to change this or do this, never said they didn't. Never said Jesus isn't going to work on them. But we got to allow the opportunity to Jesus to work on us and work on others. And I can tell you time and time again, it's going to be really hard for someone to be open to letting Jesus work on them if we're coming with shame and condemnation. But to hear that Jesus is for you, that the goodness of Jesus is greater than you can even imagine, I'm continuously baffled why that is so threatening and scary to people. Because the reality is, is you're all sitting in the same section right now. There isn't a first section, there isn't a second section, there isn't a third section. We might have mentally created them and made them up and think that, but you're all in the same room. There is nothing stopping from you from coming up here right now. Last week, we, we um, first week of the month, we have an opportunity to do the Lord's Supper. We, we focus on it. We center it. Um, we center it at Center Church um, once a month. And, but we always have it available in the back, right? Every week, you can go and take it. There is nothing stopping those who believe and confess Jesus Christ as Lord from doing that. I'm not back there with a Bible quizzing you. I'm not out back there with a checklist that that good news, that that goodness, the remembrance, that is for you. And it's for us. And to be threatened by that, to be scared by that, to recognize that, like, guess what? I bet you all have amazing testimonies, which would be great if y'all shared with one another, to encourage one another about where Jesus has met you and continues to meet you. If he's going to continue to meet you and has met you, that means he has the opportunity to continue to meet and has met other people. And that's great. That's good news. If the good news was only for us, that would be really, really boring. <laughs> Because then it would be about us and not about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so you can do that. You're not sitting in different sections. Some people aren't back there. Well, I mean, there are people back there, but they're serving. <laughs> they're not back there because of some little theological litmus, litmus test. We're here because we all, regardless of where we're at, are in the process of being formed and shaped. And please hear that if you, for some reason, are scared about the notion that the goodness of Jesus Christ is greater than we could ever imagine it, and we're called to continue to imagine as even greater because Jesus is still working on you. Okay, well, at least Jesus is still working on me. Maybe y'all got it figured out, but I don't. And he's going to continue to work on me. And that doesn't mean that right belief and right practice aren't important. They are essential, but we get to that right belief and practice by letting the goodness of Jesus in and letting that shape and form us. A couple weeks ago, as we wind down here, uh, we had the opportunity to celebrate uh, the brother of Heather's grandmother um, who passed away on Christmas Eve. Uh, and it was, a, it was a really cool service, a brief service, um, but a couple of the grandkids read scripture. And the one who read this scripture, I'm a little scared to read it because it was just the best public speaker I'd ever seen. He went up there like all the other grandkids and him too are like holding back tears and things like that because it's hard and it's devastating and they were a beautiful, close family. And he comes back there and just like, I don't feel like I need to go to a church for like three months because I got so, like, it was just insane, but not really because that's a problematic view too. But 
it was just so good. But ever since that, ever since that um, funeral, I've had this v- these verses just running in the back of my head, running back of my head. And as I think about the fact that it is Jesus that purifies our conscience and brings us from dead works to life, and the fact that there is no first section, that there is no second section, that Jesus has entered once and for all, and that you get to go. You get to walk in. You get to let yourself be formed and shaped by Jesus and the community in which Jesus has called you to. These words have just continued to bathe over me. And I have to do one preface here, and I've done it before because I've had to read this text once. So I'm from the South. There are certain words I can't say, and one of them is naked, right? So we're just going to laugh about it now. Going to get it out of us. Can't say it. I've tried. Seen a speech therapist. Cannot happen, right? I've tried to say snake, starting the first, or release the S. Doesn't work. So don't let me and that laugh about it now. Watch away the beauties of these words, okay? Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is an interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present, nor things to come, and really pay attention to this as we enter 2020, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus Christ has come, he has entered once and for all. He's made paths, he has made ways, he's going to keep working. And whenever we hear anything else that's resemblance of, but how are you earning it? How are you doing this? How are you, like, how do you deserve this? How are you making yourself deserve this? How do you make this earn? I want us to remind ourselves of the only gospel application I have for us this morning is what we hear in verse 11. But Christ. We all have but Christ stories. Right? This is what was going on. This is what was happening. This is what's going on. But Christ. But Christ. But when Christ appeared... Just let that soothe over you and soak into you. Because there's no greater truth than that. But when Christ appeared. But what about that? No, but when Christ appeared. No one is saying that we don't have work to do. No one is saying that we don't have growing and maturing. No one is saying any of these other dynamics, but they're going to be futile and fleeting if it's all on us. 
if I have to pass one of your individual tests, if I have to do this or that, that you have somehow set the bar for, but when Christ appeared, and I'm so thankful to be able to be in a community that can challenge and encourage one another and say, hey, how's that going? I know you're really struggling with that, or I know that's really challenging for you, or, hey, I understand that you have this belief, but I'm not sure how that meshes up with Scripture. Can we sit down and talk and pray about it? Hey, we have this really different cultural outlook on a specific hot-button topic or an issue that really makes it easy to just say, hey, we're just going to divide and not talk about it. Let's get breakfast and understand where one another is coming from, and let's come to the text, let's come to prayer, and let's see what Jesus has for us. Because if all we're doing is creating little church echo chambers, then the gospel is going to get lost in that. It's going to become about these tenets that we need to affirm versus the gospel that we're going to let us correct us, direct us, form us, and most importantly, be continuously there to say, hey, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from my love for you. And whenever you think you can, just remember, but when Christ appeared, and sit with that, pray about it, recognize who Jesus is, what Jesus has for you, what Jesus is inviting you into, because it will change you, it will shape you, it will form you. But we need to be able to be open to it and let other people be open to it and to know that there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ is a beautiful door to open to ourselves and to each other. Let's pray. Lord, you are a good God, a God whose goodness is still in the process of us understanding, regardless of where we're at within our faith journey, that we're going to continue to be understanding more and more. Just pray that that would continue to be revealed to us through you, through the community and what you've called us to, through the friendships that you brought us to, that you would just remind us that you are a God who is for us and with us, and that invites us into that journey of being able to be more made and shaped in your fashion, that we can be living sacrifices for you and for your kingdom and as witnesses and testimonies to all those around. In your name, amen. As the worship band plays, there'll be an opportunity in the back to remember the Lord's Supper, if you so choose, um, and just invite you to stand and worship with us.